Hey, everybody, how we doing? Good. Good. I hate to disappoint you guys, but Nate's really not coming this week, so. Which, if you ask me, we're better off without. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> He'll hear this later. Uh, it'll be good. He's used to me making fun of him. Um, let's, tonight, what tonight is, is we have very quickly taken you through four weeks of how to study your Bible. And tonight, what we want to do is just give you an opportunity to see how we put it all the pieces together. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to walk through Mark 5 together, and I'm going to show you how, if I were going to tackle this passage, how I would read it, what I would look at, the things I'd want to look up, and we'll, we'll exegete that one together. Um, and then I'm going to give you guys some time at your table, and so if you're all alone, you can jump in with somebody else, or if you want to do your exegesis alone, which we've severely warned against, you can stay at your own table. Um, and then we'll, we'll do the Philippians 2 passage, and we'll give you guys hopefully just some, some examples of just how to put all of this into practice, because I know we, we kind of give you guys a drink out of a fire hydrant the last few weeks, and so hopefully tonight we'll synthesize it all. As usual, if you have questions at any point, then feel free to raise your hand or just holler out at me, um, and we'll get started. And so like with any good Bible exegete, we're going to start with prayer because we're going to ask the Lord then to open our eyes and our hearts to what he would teach us tonight. And so if you guys will bow your heads, I'll pray for us and and we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to know you. Thank you for your word through it. We get to see you, to experience you, to know what you're like. Uh, We get to know what it is that you demand of your children. And we get to know what it's like to be encouraged by your spirit that that dwells within each of us who are believers. And so, God, illumine the text for us tonight. Allow us to see what you would have us see. Allow us to accurately handle it and keep just guards up against us if we would head in a direction that's not honoring to you or accurate of your word. So we love you. It's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen. Amen. So uh, just a a little bit of uh, housekeeping. At the end of tonight, or actually probably in your inbox right now, Sylvia, yeah? All right, you're going to get a survey for how we did. And we have just realized that people work a lot better if you incentivize them, okay? So what we're going to do is you're going to get that survey in your inbox. You can do it tonight. You'll have a week to do it. And at the end of the week, we're going to put everybody who does it, all their names in a hat, and we're going to pull one name out, and the winner is going to get this book. And this book is awesome. Yeah. Yes. So all the stuff that we've been talking about, everything we've said is in this book and some, maybe not everything we've said, but it is, uh, this is the same guys who wrote the book that we've been trying to push towards you anyways in the journey into God's word, but this is an amplified illustrated Bible handbook. So background information, they have pictures, they have maps, they have commentary, they have all the stuff that we've been talking about that you want on your bookshelf. So this book is awesome. And so the only way you're going to get this for free is one, ask for it for Christmas or two, fill out your survey. And at the end of the week, we will draw a name out of the hat. And so sound good? Awesome. And plus your surveys are how we get better. So we really do want to hear what you have to have to say. So you guys got two handouts tonight. I think they're stapled together. We're going to go through Mark 5, 1 through 20 together first. um, And then you guys will do Philippians on your own and we'll walk through that one. And so looking at Mark 5, if you flip over to the back, like we said on the first week, before we dive into any passages of scripture, we want to start asking ourselves, what kind of genre are we in and what kind of passage are we up against? Okay, so looking at Mark 5, it's obviously in the gospel of Mark. So what genre is Mark 5? Narrative, very good. And so what do we know about narrative? It's 
that people, places, right? There's stories that through these stories and actions are meant to tell us something. And so if you look at your who, what, when, where's, and why's, we're gonna tackle those. So who, who wrote Mark? Yes. You guys don't even need the Bible handbook, good. And who is in the story? And oh, you know what, I should probably read it. (laughs) We'll just read Mark 5 together real quick. So they came to the other side of the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit came from the tombs and met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one can bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. Then he cried out with a loud voice, "'Leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God.'" I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. He begged Jesus repeatedly not to send him out of the region. There on the hillside, a great herd of pigs was feeding and the demoniac spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. Jesus gave them permission. So the unclean spirits came out and went into the pigs. Then the herd rushed down the steep slope into the lake and about 2000 were drowned in the lake. Now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Then came, they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the one who had the legion, and they were, they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it, and they also told about the pigs. They then asked Jesus to leave their region, and he was getting in the boat, and as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed asked if he could go with him. But Jesus did not permit him to do so. Instead, he said, go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you, that he had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. All right. So who's in this? Who is Mark writing about? Who are the characters in this play? Jesus, good. Who else? Legion, good. Anybody else? What was that? Herdsman, great. Disciples, probably. Yeah, good. Uh, What actually happened in this passage? What's going on in this passage? Man's possessed. And and who comes on the scene? Yeah, the only one who can fix them. Good. And when does this happen? So this when is kind of tricky, and I'll help you guys. So if you were studying this passage, what you'd want to do, as we talked about context, is back out and figure out where in Mark is this passage. Um, Mark is broken up into three big categories. There's the deity. So Jesus is trying to show his deity. And then after, after chapter, around chapter 8, 26, 36 in that area, then it switches to discipleship. Jesus, after he shows them that he is in fact God through his deity, then he shows them how to be disciples. So it goes from deity to discipleship. And then it transitions after 1045, and I'm, the Son of Man did not come to, uh, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Then we switch gears and we go to his death, and we are on a track to the cross in Mark. So deity, discipleship, death. So Mark 5 falls in the first half of Mark where, Je- where Jesus is showing everybody, I am in fact God. This is one of those passages that Mark is using to show everybody, I am in fact the son of God, okay? And so just to help you out, since I know we just dropped you into Mark 5, but to back out, that's the when in this storyline this is happening. Where are they in this story? Yeah, the land of the Gerasenes, near the Decapolis. So if you had a a map, this would be a great time to open up a Bible map and go, okay, where are we at exactly? Are we near Jerusalem? Are we far from Jerusalem? Are we in Gentile territory? Are we in Jewish territory? And we're going to answer that in a second. 
And then the why. And sometimes you can't answer the why ahead of time until you really jump on it. But part of the why is like I just said, where Mark is establishing that Jesus is in fact the Christ. He is in fact the Messiah. He is in fact God. And so that's why this story is included. I mean, think about Jesus' life, three years of ministry. Mark can include a lot of things. Mark is very specific in what he chooses to include. And this is one of those passages that he's like, this is worth you knowing about and you knowing about in detail. And so it's demonstrating to to the readers, hey, this guy, Jesus, he's different. Okay. So that's a little bit of how you want to set up the context before you jump into the passage. Everybody good so far? Awesome. And if you do the survey, you can get the illustrated handbook and all that would have been made very clear to you. Great. Uh, So now what I would do in this point is I would just start observing. And so we're going to walk through here and I'm going to stop every time something stands out to me that I would probably observe as I'm going through this passage and we'll, we'll bounce ideas off each other. Or if you see something that I miss that you think is critical, stop me and show me what you think is critical as we go through. So they came to the other side of the lake. Again, we have a regional thing to the land of the Gerasenes. Just as Jesus was getting out of the boat, a man with an unclean spirit. That's where I would have stopped. Unclean spirit. Something's different about this man. He's not blind. He's not deaf. He has an unclean spirit. And this is an example of a time where I would probably begin to cross-reference. Where are other times that I've seen Jesus interact with demoniacs? Where are other times that I've seen Jesus or, or other people interact with it? Um, so this is an example of where I'd go, okay, what does it mean to have an unclean spirit? And, and, and then as you cross-reference that, as you would be able to do in your Bible, you'd be able to see that. And he came from the tombs. What's significant about tombs in Scripture from the Old Testament? What do we know about tombs? death. And can anybody, so from a Jewish mindset, if you're near death, can you then go near the community? No, right. There are laws against it. So any, any, you know, Orthodox Jew is reading along and he sees, oh, this guy's demon possessed. He has an unclean spirit and he's in the tomb. So what can we conclude about this guy? Does he have friends? No. Does he have family? No, he is all alone. So right away we can figure out this guy, he's lonely. So we might be looking at this and going, oh, he's a demoniac, but we can infer even more than that and go, not only is he a demoniac, he's a lonely demoniac. So he comes out of the tombs and he meets Jesus. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For his hands and feet had often been bound with chains and shackles, but he had torn the chains apart and broken the shackles in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Is that, what kind of language is that? Strong, emphatic, right? So we've got this emphatic picture that he, he is in a hopeless situation. Nobody can subdue him. This is one of those examples where in modern culture in America, we don't often see people who are demon-possessed. Typically, you have to go to the movies to see movies about this. Did anybody ever see The Exorcism of Emily Rose? Yeah, my brother loves scary movies, and he's terrified of scary movies. And so he watched that movie, and he watched it with his feet up on the couch, and y'all, it was just easy to like scare him for the next two weeks. And so as a dutiful older sister, I would just pretend to be demon possessed for the next two weeks. And so it's okay. We're still friends. Um, so this is an example of this, but people go, oh, I think they might be demon possessed. And I'm like, really? Well, if you cross-reference demon possession throughout scripture, you're going to notice some things about people who are demon possessed. Does anybody know what happens in Acts 19, 13 through 16? It's perhaps one of the most comical moments in the book of Acts. Yes, the sons of Sceva. Okay, the sons of Sceva are seven 
guys who are Jewish guys who see the disciples going around and they see them freeing people from demon possession. And so they're like, okay, we think it's just an incantation. So we're going to walk up and be like, in the name of Jesus, I tell you to get out of this body. What happens is, is the demon looks at them and goes, wait, 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 Jesus we know and Paul we know, but we don't know you. And you know what the demons did after that? Beat them up and sent them out running naked into the streets. That's awesome. Uh, and so the lesson from Acts is, hey, it's not just some incantation that allows somebody to be freed from a demon position. It's the power of Christ only wielded by those who believe who have the power to overcome demonic forces. And so it's a really powerful thing. So in this, we see this guy is in this situation that, what about the story, or, or later on in Mark, we'll see that the young boy keeps getting thrown into the fire over and over again by his demon. And the disciples come and they try to exercise the demon and, and, Jesus, and they can't. And then what does Jesus tell them about that one? This one only by prayer, yeah. So demon possession, something in scripture that you see is something that you need something more powerful than the demon. You, you need something more powerful than the demon. And so whatever's gonna happen, the power of Christ has to be greater than the demon. And the person wielding the power has to be greater than the demoniac power, which is important. So they subdue him. Each night and every day among the tombs and in the mountains, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Anybody know what the Old Testament says about cutting yourself? Don't do it. Yeah. Sky. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't do it. It's a sin. It's, it's, you don't harm this temple that, that God has given. You don't cause these things. So this guy is clearly being tormented. He is lonely. He is hopeless. And the one inside of him right now is more powerful than he is. And nobody has been able to help him. Nobody. This situation just keeps getting more and more bleak as we continue to read. Uh, Each night and every day, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And then he cried out with a loud voice, leave me alone, Jesus, son of the most high God. I implore you by God, do not torment me. So what do we see in there? Remembering back to our observation week, what is significant about the language we just saw? Name of God? Yes, very good. So who recognizes Jesus? The demon. That, that's pretty great. So the demon knows who he is. So uh, you might have Pharisees and the Jews and disciples who can't even recognize who he is. But the spiritual forces know who he is. What kind of language is being used? Fearful, Fearful yeah. Yeah, what do they know? Somebody's stronger than somebody, right? So the demon, he has no problem beating up on this guy down by the tombs, but then who comes along? Jesus. And suddenly he's like, hey, hey, hey. It's good. For Jesus had said to him, come out of that man, you unclean spirit. Um, We'll go on. Jesus asked him, what is your name? All right, so this is where background research comes in, and this is not something I expect y'all to know right away, but let's say you were studying this passage, And you came across and you thought, that's really interesting that Jesus would ask him his name. Does anybody know why he would ask him his name? I'll be super impressed if anybody knows this. Okay, so there was this old Jewish belief that if you could get the demon to tell you his name, then that meant you were able to be more powerful than him. So in Jewish literature, when Nate and I talked about that apocryphal stuff, the the extra material between the Old and the New Testament, the Jewish literature that it's in there, this is a, a just a folklore belief. It's not true. It's not like you should go around asking for demons' names in your houses, but it shows you what the people of this time believed. So when Jesus comes along and he says, what is your name? And the demon's like, 
It's legion. Everybody in the room's now going, oh, Jesus is bigger and badder than that guy because he got him to give him his name. And so this is an example of something as you're reading commentary that you would, as you read that, you're going, oh, okay, Jesus is more powerful than this demon because Jesus got him to give him his name. All right, what about legion? What do, you, what do we know about legion? The word legion. Yeah, 3,000, 6,000 what? Demons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So legion was a military term at this time. So this would be an example of a word study I would do. I'd look at it and go, okay, legion, it's odd that his name wasn't Bob, wasn't Mark, wasn't like something normal. Uh, so it was a military term. So this would be something that I would do a word study on possibly and go, okay, why, why is his name legion? Well, the term legion during this time under the rule of Augustus would have been anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000. Yeah. Yes. Is this hard to see? Well, guys. <laughs> So sorry. I'm also going to move this forward. So earlier, I won't tell y'all who did this, but somebody came in here. Y'all should know this. Watermark has an Instagram account where somebody, I don't know who on staff, goes around taking photos of inanimate objects that are really boring, and they just post them. And then they put a humorous tagline to it. So somebody, I'm not going to say who, but she's in this room in the AV booth. Uh, She's now walking out of it. Um... We were talking about how to incentivize you guys, and so I came up with this, and unbeknownst to me, when she was coming in here to set up the room, she had put on there that if you fill out the survey, you're going to win a date with me, but you have to pay. And I was like, Sylvia, nobody's going to fill out the survey. So, but whoever owns that Watermark account took a photo of it and posted it for all of the Watermark staff to see, and so I was like, let's get that off of there. So, um, so all of this I'm blaming on Sylvia. So he's lonely. These are things I'm going to highlight. And he's hopeless. And Jesus, uh, Jesus is powerful. Is greater. Jesus is greater. You bet. I'll try a light yellow next time. See how that works out. Um, move my. See when Nate's not here, guys. He's the AV guy. So. Uh, yeah, so legion was a term that would have been used uh, that they, people during this time as a military term, and it meant anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 men in an infantry unit. So a legion was a unit of people that was three. So think about that. You're, Jesus is coming along. What is your name? And this guy's like, it's legion for we are many. Not many, like a handful, like that. The reader's going, oh, oh, this, is, this isn't the demon possessed guy. This is the demon possessed of all demon possessed guys. This is the guy that unless you're the most powerful guy, you're not, you're not rescuing this guy. How are you more powerful than 3,000 to 6,000 demons is what a reader might be thinking at this point, but they don't know Jesus. So, but you might be reading along if you're, if you're at this time and you're seeing this and you're going, this situation is going from bad to worse. I mean, we show up and this guy is lonely nobody can subdue him. He's been in shackles and chains. He has no friends. He has no family. And he's demon-possessed by thousands of demons. What are we going to do? What, what are we going to do? Right? And then we keep reading, because you should keep reading. If you ever are doing Bible study and you stop there, that's really bad for Bible study. People leave discouraged, so I've just learned to not do that over time. Just kidding. So Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus repeatedly not to send them out of the region. There on the hillside, a great herd of pigs was feeding. So anytime you see animals in the Bible, 
Here's just a good rule of thumb. Words aren't wasted in scripture. There's a reason why the author used them. All, all good books, every word should have a purpose. So if you're ever reading a book and you're like, there's just a lot of words and they're not doing much, that's a bad book, okay? So, uh, and if you're writing one, that advice was free. Okay, so anytime words are mentioned in scripture, they matter. So if you're ever wondering, is that worth looking up? It probably is. What do we know about pigs from the Old Testament? Unclean, yeah. So this is an area that is obviously a Gentile region. No, no rightful Jew would live in this area. So this is an example where when people are like, hey, Jesus only cares about the Jews. Nope, he took his ministry also out to the Gentile territory. So they see a great herd of pigs that was feeding and the demoniac spirits begged him, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, he's even nice to demons, but not to the pigs. Yeah, there was a lot of pork lost that day. A lot, especially because like in about a year, God's going to be like, hey, Peter, you can eat pork. And so you're like, really? You couldn't wait a year for all that bacon? So Jesus gives them permission. And so the unclean spirits come out and go into the pigs. And then the herd rushes down the steep slope in the lake and about 2,000 were drowned in the lake. This showing them that they're going in the lake demonstrates what those pigs would have done to that man if they were allowed to. Demons want to destroy. Every time you see them, what are they doing to the person that they're in? trying to harm them, destroy them. If not for the grace of God sustaining these people, that's what a demon wants to do. They want to destroy. And so we we get a very clear glimpse of that. They rush into all these pigs and they just go right off the embankment. So that gives us an idea uh, of what would happen. And so now Jesus has exercised this guy. And one of the things that was a Jewish belief at this time is that um, the reason why he sends them somewhere is they had this belief that if you just exercise the demon out, then they could come back. And so this guy, imagine being in this guy now, and he's got this legion, and Jesus sends the demons away into pigs, and he gets to watch their destruction. So if you're this guy, like you may be sitting there thinking like, when he leaves, are they going to come back, right? When he's, right, he's exercising this, and suddenly you don't have to wonder that anymore, because where are your demons at? They're in the bottom of a lake. They're not coming back, right? The bubbles eventually stop, and you're just sitting there, and you're going... Some, something's different, okay? And so Jesus does that. And then now the herdsmen ran off and spread the news in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The one who had the legion, they were afraid of. And those who had seen what had happened to the demon-possessed man reported it. And they all told about the pigs. Then they asked Jesus to leave the region. Why did they ask Jesus to leave the region? They are terrified. Right? Because power is scary. Um, y'all ever go to see magic shows? Good, okay. Uh, I was at a uh, establishment where you could order beverages for adults one time, and um, I was just there with some guy friends from seminary, and um, this guy comes up and he goes, can I, can I do some magic tricks on you? And I was like, no. He's like, no, 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 please, please, let me, let me do some magic tricks on you. And is it okay if my friend films it? And I was like, uh, is it, where is this going to? Like, I haven't really done my hair like every other day, but it's just a good excuse I use all the time. And, uh, and he's like, no, 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 I think you'll really enjoy this. And so this guy starts doing these tricks that if I didn't know any better, I would think were miraculous. Like, it felt like he was reading my mind. And I felt myself like 
like beginning to like move back from him. Like, like where I was like, hey, and I finally, and finally one of, and then he started doing it to one of my guy friends. And, and then one of them's trying to share the gospel with him. And he starts like dropping the F-bomb about Jesus. And that's the point at which I got really uncomfortable. Cause I was just like, I don't, so again, I don't think anything demon possessed is going on here. I think the guy's just really good at sleight of hand and reading my mind. And probably my face was twitching the whole time. Uh, cause the first card trick he did, like my face totally twitched when he asked me if it was a seven of clubs. I was like, no. He's like, was it the seven of clubs? I was like, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't think it, but it was just an example. Like we, he rattled us. Like I remember we, we walked away from that and we were like, that didn't feel right. The idea of somebody having that kind of power over us was really unsettling. So you can imagine if you don't know Jesus and you just saw that demonstration of power, you're thinking, I really hope he's a good guy. Because if he's a bad guy and he has that kind of power, I don't want to be anywhere near him. And so you see these herdsmen coming, but what's amazing about Jesus' power is what does he do? He destroys the demon and he puts this guy right back into his mind. He's wielding his power for good. So they come and they, they get, they're asked Jesus to leave. Um, and then, and then the, the demon-possessed man, who's now in his right mind, asks him, can I go with you? Can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. Go to your home and to your people and tell them what the Lord has done for you. What does Jesus call himself? Yeah, name of God. This is really important. So when people are like, hey, we don't know that Jesus actually thought he was God. Well, he's calling himself the Lord, which is pretty strong language. And so Lord is used to describe Jesus, which is really important. Anytime you see the names of God, tell him what the Lord has done for you, that he had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim to the Decapolis what Jesus had done for him, and all were amazed. Yay, Jesus. Great. Okay. Pretty amazing. So looking at all these observations and knowing that we're dealing with their town, we do have a little bit of a river here. It's not huge, but what are some of the differences between their town and what we see in this passage in our town? Pigs, yeah. Anybody been hanging out with 2,000 pigs lately? Some of y'all might. I don't know. Yeah, so just an agrarian society. So uh, when you think about what would be an equivalent of that, so Jesus took their livelihood and ran it off an embankment. And they had decided that their livelihood was more important than a man's life. Right? So maybe an equivalent of this would be you own a, a window shop and Jesus comes in and shatters all your windows or I don't know, something like that. But yeah, it's different. I mean, we don't... No, I wouldn't care if I saw 2,000 pigs go off an embankment because they're not my pigs. Like, I'd be like, that was crazy, but not my problem, right? Whereas in this culture, it's everybody's problem. It's an agrarian society. What other differences? We don't send people to tombs. Yeah, and even if we did, we're under the new covenant, right? Because of what Jesus is gonna do in a couple of chapters, it, nobody's unclean. Like there, there's nobody you should be like, get away from me. If you touch me, I have to go to the temple and make a sacrifice, right? So he's hopeless and he's lonely because he's in, he's in the tombs and he's doing all these things. But do we know people that are hopeless and lonely in other situations? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this gives us an example of how we should treat them with shackles and chains. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> what other differences? Geography. Geography. It's great. What else? 
Y'all getting the good ones. You're getting the gist, though. There's a barrier here. If I were to walk away from this text and go, hey, the universal theological principle is is when you see somebody demon-possessed, call Jesus, and he'll walk over and fix them. Which, one, I don't think he has a cell phone. And two... That's just not, there's something more. That's what's going on here, right? And so what we're going to do is, what is going on in their town? What, what is actually happening? If you guys were to summarize this story in just a couple of sentences, what would you say happened in their town? What's that, Clark? Yeah, Christ proved he's like, that's awesome. So Christ comes across a hopeless situation. And he proves he's the man. He's Lord. That's good. What else? Anybody want to add to that? Change that? Modify that? We feel good about that? Just the, uh, the greatness of uh, the Lord's mercy in those open situations. Yes. God's mercy. Power. I love it. It's good. Okay, so we've got a good idea of what's going on here. If somebody were to say, what happened in Mark 5, 1 through 20, you would go, Jesus met a hopeless man and demonstrated his compassion and mercy and power upon him and freed him from his bondage. We're good with that? Yeah, you got that. You got that from just, this is really organized right here. Wow. Um, Whatever. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you get it. <laughs> Makes some room. That was awesome. No, no, that was that was the most gentle. <laughs> I know a lot more about you now. Now that I know your ringtone, it's good. I have no idea what mine is. Uh, yeah, the people. That's that's really big. There, there's two responses to what happened here, right? One is the demoniac. What does he do? Yeah, and what about the herdsmen and the townspeople? Yeah, you're going to see that a lot in the Gospels. You're going to see true disciples are the ones that follow Jesus no matter what, and you're going to see that there are people who say, like, hey, you're Lord, until it gets uncomfortable or weird or costly. And so you see that all throughout the, the scriptures of the Gospel. That's why Jesus, later, he turns around and he looks at Peter, and he goes, where have all the people gone? They were following me because they thought he was a cool magician or a, a healer or whatever, and he's like, they've, they've all left you. And he looks at Peter and he goes, well, are you going to leave me? He goes, where, where am I going to go? You have the words of life. Even if I wanted to walk away, I know too much now. Which is, I think, sometimes how we feel. So yeah, so we know that he's, so this is what's going on in their town. So let's mine that out and come up with the universal theological principle from this passage. Now look, this is one of those things that you could get several. Okay, I know to try and narrow it down to one theological principle, you could focus on power. You could focus on mercy. You could focus on the people's response. And so this is a way that you could legitimately get a couple of different theological principles. But what must be true of all of them is that they're true for everybody and in all places and at all times. So if you say, if you're demon possessed, Jesus will always heal you. I'm like, nope, you're wrong. Okay. That's not what, that's not what's going on here. But if you say Jesus has the power to overcome any hopeless situation, then you're back in the game. Okay, and so that's what I focused on. I, that's why I circled power. That's the one I focused on, is that there's no hopeless situation when Jesus comes on the scene. Je- Jesus' lordship is more powerful than any bondage you're facing, is how I would 
how I would do this. But what about you guys? What's a, what's a universal theological principle you could pull out of this passage that is true for everybody in all places and at all times? We have a choice. Expand on that. What kind of choice? We have a choice to seek Jesus or not. Yeah. To accept his assistance or not. Yeah. One of the the guys went, uh, he said he goes from, um, what is it, from possession to proclamation. So that's how one guy said it. He goes, you you can go from possession to proclamation. And because this guy goes out and he tells everybody. And so this idea of, are you going to follow him? In the face of his power, are you going to shrink back, be upset, worry about your own costs, worry about what you, how you're fearful, or are you going to go out and proclaim to everybody what he's done? Which is a really powerful thing, because we've all, hopefully in this room, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were that guy. Maybe not as bad as that guy, but some of you in here are going, I know a hopeless situation. I was a hopeless situation. And I didn't think anybody could save me. And then Jesus came on the scene, and suddenly I'm free. So I want to go tell everybody. Right? This is actually a really common story that maybe at first glance you go, that seems a little different. There's demon possession going on here, pigs, whatever. But th- this is a very common story for us. What else? What other universal theological principle would you glean out of this text? The enemy is no match for Jesus. Preach. Y'all go home, say amen, we're done. Yeah. Jesus is greater than the enemy. That'll preach, right? Hey, this guy was legion. He was the demon of all demons. 2,000 pigs died that day. Nobody could help this guy. And Jesus comes up, and how does he defeat him? He doesn't punch him in the face. He doesn't build a fire. What does he say? What's your name? Get out. That's, you're, you know you're powerful when you don't have to fight. You know what I mean? Like, you're, like, talking mess to somebody. You're like, we're going to do this. And then your, like, big Bubba brother comes up behind you, and they, like, run off. And you're like, yeah. That wasn't because of you. That was because Big Bubba Brother was behind you, and he's so powerful, he doesn't have to fight. The guy already knows he's beat, so he's like, let's just get out of here before we lose any teeth. That's what happens when Jesus comes on the scene. So you may be facing an enemy that you think, this one might have me beat. No, he doesn't. There's no enemy greater than Jesus. What else? Anybody else? These are really good. Permission, yeah. Absolutely. Did y'all catch that? He said he loved the word permission, that, that the demoniacs begged Jesus to go into the pigs and he gave them permission. Why? Because they obey him. They don't move until he tells them move. They don't go until he tells them go. And they know, they know, we are under his authority now. Whatever authority we thought we had, we don't have it anymore now that Jesus is here. It's pretty amazing. All right, so we, we figured out our universal theological principle, whatever, whichever one you liked of those or you have your own in your head. So then we transfer it over to our time. What is a relevant, concise, and accurate application of this passage? So let's say our universal theological principle is um, Jesus is greater than the enemy. What would be an application of that? Don't fear the enemy. How many of y'all sometimes need that? Yeah, don't fear the enemy. What else? Trust your Lord. Was that you, Shazia? Yeah, trust your Lord. 
Anybody else on this one? What if it's, uh, you have a choice to either, in the face of power, you have the choice to follow or to shrink back? What would be an application for that? Follow no matter what. Yeah. Or don't be, yeah, I'm not, I think, I love that. But I think about, um, I think there are times in our life um, when God wants to give us power and, and we don't want to receive it. So, for example, Acts, Jesus tells them, hey, when you're in the city together, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power to proclaim the good news. And so sometimes I think we're sitting in a bus or sitting on an airplane or sitting with our friend or family or somebody we've been dying to share the gospel with or maybe God just prompts us to share the gospel with and, and we know that the power of Christ is within us and we, we kind of do this, right? And we can do this because we don't need to be scared of his power. His power is for us to wield in a way that is what Jesus does for this man. He gives that power to his disciples, in two chapters, three chapters, he's going to send them out to do the very same thing. The power that Christ wields in this passage is the power within you today. That's amazing. And he tells you, wield it. Don't be scared of it. Wield it. And so look, I'm not saying go out looking for demon-possessed people and try and, you know, you might end up like the sons of Sceva, naked and running in the streets of Dallas. But what I am saying is when you're up against an enemy and you feel powerless, you can remember, I'm not powerless. The same power that set this man free is the same power that lives in me today, which is powerful. <laughs> Just use the word like 12 times in a row. Any other applications? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The guy naturally would want to go and be with Jesus, and what does Jesus do? No, stay, go tell everybody. So sometimes Jesus might be looking at you, I know this is the direction you want to go, but go out into the world and tell them what I've done for you, how I set you free. Any questions on this process? Because I'm about to set you free to do it yourselves. And by free, I mean within the context of your circle. So if you're like, oh, I don't really want to do it with them, you could go to the restroom and sit somewhere else when you come back. That's how I got out of a lot of group projects in school. <laughs> yep. I'd be like, oh, I'm good, teach. I'm going to go do this in the hallway. Uh, all right, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the Philippians 2 passage. And you guys did a great job, by the way, with this uh, Mark 5 one. And so I'm going to give you guys a, a decent amount of time. I'm going to give you 20 minutes. So take your time. But if you look on the back, so on the front you have the passage... And then you look on the back, and those are the who, what, when, where, and why. So go ahead and tackle those. And then one of the things that, uh, just to get you started in the right direction, what kind of genre is Philippians? It's a letter. It's an epistle. And so do you guys remember specs from the first week? If not, I'll help you out here. So specs is something that you can always look for in a letter because um, I'll walk you through. So the S in the specs, the first S, is a sin to avoid. So S, sin to avoid. P is a promise to keep. E is an example to follow. So sin to avoid, promise to keep, example to follow. C is a command to follow. 
And S is a stumbling block to avoid. So anytime you're going through the epistles, the letters, the things that Peter and Paul wrote, the specs is something that you always want to look for in addition to all the observation stuff that we talked about. And so what you guys are going to do is from start to finish, you're going to do this whole process. So you're going to come up with what's going on in their town, what are the barriers between a one-to-one, and there's not that many this time, just so you know. Uh, and then come up with a universal theological principle that you guys like, and then how would you apply this passage, okay? And if you need me, I'll be in the back with Sylvia, who thinks she's funny, but not. Great. All right, was it the green that we could see? Okay. All right. So, Philippians, right? We didn't do Ephesians on accident, did we? Good. That's always a good start. Okay, so let's start with the who, what, when, where, and why so we can ground ourselves in this book so we can glean as much out of it as possible. So what did you guys get for who? Paul, very good. Who's he writing to? Very good. And does anybody know what happened to him the first time he was in Philippi? He got beat up. He got beat up. Paul's not very strong. Um, just kidding, there was a mob. All right, what is the genre? You guys said it earlier, an epistle, which is a fancy word for letter. Good, and what do letters typically give us? Specs, yeah, right, commands to follow, things to keep. A way of living. Um, Paul and Peter and, and the others are saying, hey, in light of Christ, here's then how we should live. Uh, when was it written, or when was it, you know, when? What did you guys put for when? Yeah, 61, and where, where is Paul at during this time? Yeah, he's in prison in Rome, not, not living the dream. And then uh, why was it written? What's the purpose behind this letter? What was that? To encourage. Sorry, guys, the accents. Too many Alabamans over there. Uh, yeah, to encourage. Why else was it written? To implore them to live in humility. That was awesome. What, what was that out? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And also, who's Epaphroditus? Anybody know? What does Paul say about Epaphroditus in this letter? This is, this is, yeah, but he's sending them back, and they wanted, who did they want instead? You wouldn't get this out of our passage, just to know. So they wanted Timothy. And Paul is essentially telling them, you can't have Timothy, but I'm sending you back Epaphroditus. So he's trying to manage their disappointment as well. Okay, so poor Epaphroditus, he gets to be in scripture as like the B team. All right. All right, so what did we observe in the, in the passage? What are, what are the things that you guys observed? Yeah, so treat others well, not to be self-centered. What else did you guys observe? Repetition, great. What was repeated? A lot of things, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, <laughs> you guys, you get an A. Uh, yeah, repetition. I'll just write it down, repetition. So a lot of things are repeated, which is uh, interesting. The what. Does anybody in their Bibles have this passage written the way that I had it written on the paper in the, the poetic form? Did anybody in their Bible have that? Yeah, so some did. Anybody not have it? Yeah, so there's a little bit of um, 
I don't know if I'd say debate, but people are just discussing whether or not this was an early poem in the Christian church that they would have memorized, starting specifically in verses 6 through 11. And part of why they think it might be poetry is that repetition in there, these repeated ideas, these repeated concepts. All right, what else did you guys observe? Selfless, good. Was there a cause and effect or a purpose and a result, I mean? Did y'all catch the purpose and result starting in verse 8 and purpose in 8 and result in 9? Yes. So as Christ humbled himself, God did what? Exalted him. Very good. Which is counterintuitive, right? You don't expect that to be what you see. And you certainly don't expect the Savior of the world to humble himself. And yet he does that. What else do you guys notice in there? What about that even death on a cross? How would you guys categorize that? There's a what at the end of it. Exclamation point. So it's emphatic, right? So what do you think Paul means by even death on a cross? Why do you think that was included? It was the worst of all deaths. Yep. The absolute worst. In fact, if you're a Roman citizen, you were exempt from it. So this emphatic language, I mean, we get this massive, like, not, he didn't just die, he, he went to the cross for you. He was humiliated for you. He didn't just take one bullet to the head and that was it, and this really said, no, 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 he was absolutely, the wrath of God was poured out on him in the worst sort of way, and he did that for you. What else did you guys notice? What about lists? Any lists? Yeah, you were saying it as I was saying it, we were, it's too. Good. Yeah, what list do we see? What are, what are you guys seeing in the list? At the very beginning in verse 1, where it lists out the different encouragements that they could have given. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. If you've been encouraged at all by Christ, if you've been provided comfort and love, if you have any fellowship in the spirit, which by the way, if you're a believer, all these things are true. If you have any affection or mercy, then what? Complete his joy. And how do we do that? Yeah, absolutely. So you start out, you read this list and you're like, that's me. So then that's what I am. So then, then I have something I need to do. So what about the specs? Let's go through the specs. What about sins to avoid? Yeah, absolutely. What about promises to keep? Yeah, I didn't really get one in there either. All right, uh, E, example to follow. Yeah, anytime Christ is mentioned in an epistle, just pay attention to that. There's typically an example to follow because we're supposed to mimic him, we're supposed to image him. And so it's good. What about a command to follow? I hear y'all murmuring. I'm sure they're the right answers. Yeah, having be united in spirit. Have one purpose. Instead of doing this, this, and this, treat one another as more important than yourself. Um, what about a stumbling block to avoid? Say, will you say it again? Yeah, concerned only with your own interests. Good. Any other observations you guys feel are really critical? Every knee will bow. 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. What about names of God in there, right? Yeah, this is one of the cool passages in the scripture that has the Trinity in it. So we see the Spirit early on. Um, we see Christ early on. We see it continue with God and Christ. So we have this interplay of the Trinity, which is really fun. So you see the different things that the Trinity does. Um, and then every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Yeah. Anything else? What about the word slave? If I were studying this, I would look up the word slave. And I think you guys, because you go to a good church, or I hope you do, um, I didn't mean that. If you go here, you go to a good church. Um, if you don't go here, I hope you go to a good church. That was weird. Uh, so because you go to a good church, you, you guys, I think we teach well, and part of what we do is I think people know the vernacular is word slave. But if you're really reading this, and you're, and you're thinking, Jesus became a slave. He didn't become a helper. Um, he didn't become an assistant. He didn't become second in command. He became a doulos. And so this word doulos is different uh, than our common understanding of the word. That's wrong. There we go. Um, that word doulos, anybody know what that word means? Anybody ever studied that word? Servant. And what is unique about a doulos? Did they, were they born into slavery? Did they commit a crime? Like why are they a slave? They chose to be, absolutely. Slavery in the ancient world is very different than what oftentimes we think of in our modern mindset where there's this racial component going on. All of that slavery, that's wrong. That's wrong. When scripture talks about slavery, it's not talking about blacks and whites in the South or Europeans and West Indies. That is wrong and condemnable and awful. But what's going on here is that many times poor people didn't have an option to own land and they didn't have a way to provide for their family. And so by way of providing, they would sell themselves into slavery. They willfully went into slavery. And that's what it's saying about Christ. He willfully became a slave. God didn't make him a slave. Christ chose to be a slave. And that, that matters. Because if we have a God who's just making his son be a slave and making him go to the cross, like that, that's not a good theology. That's not a good Christ to follow. All right, good. So we've got our observations. So what are some boundaries between their town and our town? There's not many. So we'll just say language. So this was written in Greek and we speak English. So you have to deal with the fact that you're reading an English Bible. But this is one of those passages that's a pretty good one-to-one. -one. So your, your universal theological principle will probably sound a lot, a lot like their town. And so how would you summarize what Paul is saying in this Philippians 2 passage? What would you say is the summary of their town? What is Paul exhorting the Philippians to do or to be or to think or be a humble servant? And why? Because Christ was. Very good. Thanks, Candy. So this is be a humble servant. Would everybody agree that the word humility is a big word in this passage? Yeah. So probably that word you want to include if you're ever doing this on your own and you just keep seeing this theme continuously coming up. So like in the last passage in the Mark one, that's why I used the word power because I just kept seeing this power, power, power. And I want to make sure I include it. Humble servant because Christ was a humble servant. So what would you say is our universal theological principle? What's the thing that's true everywhere and in all places and for all people? Christ is the Lord. But what makes it, keep going with that idea, because that we can get out a lot of the passages, but what, what makes it, what is Paul uniquely saying in this one about Jesus? Humility, yeah. 
This is, uh, this is a passage called the kenosis. Kenosis is just a fancy word for emptying because this is the passage where Jesus, we, we have a lot of Christology, which is a theology about Jesus where he empties himself. He takes on the form of man and not considering equality with the God a thing to be grasped, but humbles himself taking on the form of a slave, not even a man, a slave, and, and brings himself before that. And so um, I think candies for their town is probably a good one here. So Christ is our Lord. We should be like Christ. So we should be humble because Christ was humble. And what does that humility lead to in this passage? What does it lead to? Unity. Very good. You guys are so good. Yeah. They don't get along. They don't get along. And so Paul's going, hey, get along. Be unified. Why? Well, because if you were humble like Jesus then you would be unified because you would be looking for not your own interest, but what? Yeah. And does, is that true for everyone? All places? All times? You right now? I know it is for me because I know the opposite of that is when I look out for my own interests, that does not go well for me. Um, well, it actually goes well for me for a little bit until someone calls me out. And has its season, guys. All right. So, yeah, it's humble. Christ was humble, so we should be humble, and that humility will lead to unity. Anybody want to add to that, change that, argue against it? Yeah. The selfie generation. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you think about, so what she's saying is in our culture, this idea of humility, this idea to tell somebody to humble themselves is so foreign. We live in the selfie culture. We live in the um, exaltation of self constantly. I was actually, it's funny that you say that. I was literally telling a friend today, I go, you know, uh, Instagram, I started calling Instabrag because Instagram became a way for me to just show off all my new toys or trips or whatever. And I really am like, I don't, I don't want to be like that. I already struggle with pride. That's already a, a root sin of mine. Um, and so I started just kind of, I rarely just take a photo of myself. Like, I don't think I've ever posted a selfie unless I'm like missing a tooth or um, like sometimes I get caught in the rain on my vest, but I think that's funny to laugh at myself. So if I do something dumb, I'll post a selfie. Uh, but what has caused that now is then I just post photos of my cat and my nieces and nephew. And so I went from like Insta brag to like crazy cat lady. Uh, so, you know, that happens. But anyways, to that point, I was like, it's so foreign to, to just be outward focused because so much of what social media tells you to do is to be inwardly focused, right? And you live in a culture where you don't look at notifications to see what people are doing. You look to see what people have said about you or liked or now you can like happy face and heart things and all that stuff on Facebook. And so I think you're right. I think this is incredibly counter to our culture. What else would y'all say about our town that is unique about Dallas, Texas, 20, I almost said 2014. It is not 2014. It's been, 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. What, what would you say about our culture that would make something like this difficult? Rich, yes, absolutely. What's the, what's the, 
So if you weren't born in America, you're here now, and so what's the American way? What's the motto of America? It's not as much now, but... Yeah, individualism. Absolutely. I pulled myself up by what? That's right. Did I get any help from you guys? No, never mind that I was raised in a family where I got a good education and healthcare and support, but whatever. I, I climbed to the top of women's ministry on my own, guys, okay? Yeah, it's silly, but that's, you know, we, we fight, we constantly fight against this, right? We live in it. And so knowing that, knowing that their town, so a lot of what their humility was about was factions, okay? And so there was just, they just didn't, I mean, you think about the tension in the early church. You went from having Jews who believed in Jesus and then Gentiles who believed in pagan gods, and you've got Paul coming along, and he's trying to fuse these two groups together, which is a lot about what unity is about, and they just don't get along. Because the Gentiles used to persecute the Jews, and the Jews think the Gentiles are unclean, and the Gentiles are sick of being told they're unclean, and so there's all this tension in the early church. They don't like each other, and they're refusing to become a slave to each other. I don't want to be your slave. I've been your slave too long. I don't want to, I don't want to humble myself. I want to be right. You guys need to get circumcised if you want to follow Jesus. We are the true followers of God. We have all this stuff. And Paul comes along and goes, hey, y'all need to get along. You know why you need to get along? Look at Jesus. He humbled himself. And in doing so, his dad exalted him. You want to be first? You better be last. You want to get along? Be each other's slaves. And so that's what Paul is saying to this town. And then we come to our town and suddenly, hey, if being rich is more important than loving your neighbor, you're missing something here. Or if your selfie game is so strong that you don't even know that other people are behind you, photobombing you, like you are way too self-absorbed. So where do we see, you know, this individualism that's not unity, and we see this within the church. We see this within our community groups, right? You've got people in your community group that just get on your nerves. And maybe what Christ is asking you to do is to humble yourself. Seek to serve them. Lay yourself down for them. Yeah. Yeah. He said humility, especially in the recovery circles, is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Thinking about correlations of this, where do we see Jesus exercising this type of humility, especially in the book of John? What does he do for his disciples? He washed their feet. He washed their feet. Something that only a slave does. Yeah. And so the modern application of this, how can we apply this passage to what's going on in our world and in our lives today? What's an application of Philippians 2? Serve others. Yeah. So in your own life, who are you not? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. But thinking about this, you don't have to answer me out loud, but if we want to be concise and relevant and accurate, just take a moment. Who's somebody in your life that, quite frankly, there's just lacking a little bit of unity because maybe of lacking a little bit of humility? Is there somebody that, at work, it's difficult to get along with them, or at home, it's, it's difficult to maintain unity? And then ask yourself, maybe it's because this is lacking. Are there areas that you can maybe grow in that? I know I can. What other applications? Did that say serve us? Like, even in my subconscious, I'm a sinner. Serve others. Good grief. I don't even know what year it is. I don't know why y'all letting me teach. What other applications of this? Encounter 
be countercultural. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Let's unpack that. Yeah. Yeah, maybe post less selfies. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. She said get a cat if you didn't catch that. And let me just tell you, that will humble you. Come here. No. Oh, okay. Right here. Just whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah. You got to have a strong power of self-worth to have a cat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, here's an idea. Exalt Christ, like she's saying. Post more praise. Instead of exalting ourselves, maybe in the same way that God exalts Christ, exalting Christ. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, like, just to bring this home, I have a, a roommate who, uh, she's cleaner than I am, and, uh, and she's coming home from Thailand. She's been gone for a month, and so my tendency is to not care that I transported her cat to Oklahoma City and back last weekend and it's covered in cat hair. Because my tendency is going to be, get over it. Okay? And so now I'm like standing here actually convinced of this, that that is not going to lead to unity. That's just me being like, I'm more important than you. Because my time is more important than going and getting your car detailed before you get home. And so I'm actually convicting myself as I'm standing here thinking that probably tomorrow, on Friday, when I normally am off, that I'll probably go clean her car. Because she is more important than me. Her... Her car is more important than me wanting to just lay out by the pool tomorrow. So, kinda. <laughs> She'll never listen to this, so she has no idea how well I love her, so it's fine, whatever. Just kidding. I just lost my crown in heaven by telling all of you, but all right. Does this feel more comfortable than it did five weeks ago? Okay. Let's take just a few minutes. Any last questions? And I'm gonna let you guys out of here early unless you have a lot of questions just because you guys have been a great audience. And Nate and I, if he were here, we would just tell you, this is, we love teaching this class. And part of why we love teaching this class is to get a room full of people who are eager to learn how to study God's word is uh, deeply encouraging for us. And so it has been a joy to walk with you in these last few weeks. And if there's something in the future that we can answer for you, help you, set you in the right direction, please don't hesitate to email us. Um, or even Sylvia. Sylvia knows this stuff really well. She painfully sits through every core class, so I think she could teach them by this point. But uh, any questions? And then just by way of reminder, you could win this book, guys. So while you were exegeting Philippians, you got an email in your inbox telling you to do the survey. So Sylvia will bring it to your doorstep, wherever you live. Yeah, any questions? If not, I'll, I'll pray up and send you out. But yeah. Yeah, so um, just candidly, we're down a guy on the AV team right now. And so normally they're really great to just get on posted every week. We're, we're just behind. And so I, I wish I could even give you a date, but um, hopefully within the next few weeks we'll be able to get... Yeah, yeah. And so there's the ones from, which I probably is why I said 2014. We taught this back in 2014. I would argue we've gotten better, but if you, you know, want to send it your friend's way. Week one is up. Oh. If you still don't know what an epistle is, go listen to week one. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, I'll pray for you guys, and we'll get on to our 4th of July weekends and, you know, cleaning out my roommate's car. All right. <laughs> Father, we thank you for an opportunity to safely gather. Uh, there's people all over this world who, to pro- profess your name, takes a great deal of courage and strength and bravery. 
Uh, and so, Lord, help us to not take for granted the freedom that we have, what we're going to celebrate this weekend, um, that this is a country for now that we can boldly proclaim your truth without fear and without trembling. And so, God, um, may that be true in every area of our lives. May we boldly proclaim your truth. Let us not be scared of your power, but instead embrace it and allow us to seek the betterment of others around us instead of our own needs and our own wants. And we do that because your, your son first did all of that. And so we love you. It's in your son's name that we ask these things. Amen.